Welcome back to Trojan Talk. I'm Ryan Young, joined today, as usual, by my co-host, Max Brown, the former USC quarterback, our Trojansports.com analyst. And there is a lot to analyze and debate and discuss and break down. It's been a while for the loyal listeners of this podcast, and we appreciate you for being loyal listeners of Trojan Talk and asking for more podcasts. We were last here with you in December, breaking down the 2019 season, giving out our end-of-season player awards, looking ahead to the offseason and what was to come. Well, obviously, lots transpired since then, and today we're going to get into kind of the, the main storyline of this USC offseason is the hiring of defensive coordinator Todd Orlando. Of course, USC officially announced the hiring of Orlando two Fridays ago. The news had kind of broken that previous Monday. It takes a while for USC to officially acknowledge hires and and uh, formally announced them. But Orlando has jumped in head first into recruiting. USC had a huge recruiting event this past weekend, a big junior day with a lot of 2021 and 2022 prospects. I will break all that down for you at the end of this podcast. I will also set the stage for National Signing Day, which is this Wednesday. It's going to be a quiet National Signing Day for USC, but that's kind of in line with this entire recruiting cycle for the Trojans. Uh, Certainly, they hope to add a couple pieces. I will break all that down for you at the end, but the meat of today's podcast is about Tyler Orlando. It's about what to expect on the defensive side of the ball. Max is going to break down everything you need to know about Orlando's defense, how it suits USC's personnel, which guys stand to benefit the most from this change, which guys might be a little bit leery about kind of how they fit into this new defense. We'll get into all that. Uh, Just a quick note, though, at the top. Max and I had our Todd Orlando discussion at the end of the week, and then on Sunday the news comes out. Bruce Feldman of The Athletic breaks the news that USC is replacing three more assistant coaches all on the defensive side. Longtime linebackers coach, recruiting coordinator Johnny Nansen, who's been here since the end of 2013. Uh, defensive line coach Chad Kauha'aha'a, who came in last year. And defensive backs coach Greg Burns, who also came in last year and I thought did a pretty good job in this one year here. They will not be retained by Tyler Lando. And it's not a surprise because, you know, coordinators like to put their own stamp on things, bring in their guys, guys that know how to run their system. And you have to think that. Orlando, who has already hired one former top assistant for him, Craig Nivar, who's coming in to coach of safeties after working with Orlando at Houston and Texas. You have to think that he's probably going to go back to that same well and look to add more guys who know his defense inside and out and, can, and who can help him implement it quickly as he hopes to have an immediate impact here at USC in 2020. But that's really what our discussion is about, is, is what kind of immediate impact can Todd Orlando have on this program, on this defense. And without further ado, let's get into it. Let's bring in the guy who can break it all down for you. Max, how are you? What's up, Ryan? I'm great. Yeah, no, I'm, uh, I'm fired up. These new, uh, new hires have given us some, uh, some content, done my studying on Orlando, so uh, this should be a good pod. Well, when you think about it, really now the last two off-seasons, they've changed out almost the entire staff. You have Kerry Colbert as a holdover. Tim Drevno got reassigned. Uh, everything else has really changed these last two off-seasons. And there's not many more scapegoats to pin on if things go poorly next year. This is, I mean, heck, I there I are, there are no more scapegoats. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, he has uh, no one else uh, left to uh, potentially put the blame on. But hopefully, it doesn't get to that point. You know, I, I I said last year was a make or break season for Clay Helton. Uh, so what do I know? But I'm going to say this year is definitely a make or break <laughs> season, and he's got to hope that Tyler Lando can work his magic. And his track record shows that he's been really good 
right away at a few of his stops. He's come in and made immediate impacts. We'll get into all that. Kind of give me your initial reaction, though, to that hire. It took, my goodness, almost a month, more, well, more than three weeks, before they, they filled that position after letting go of Clancy Pendergast. What was your reaction through the process and then when you saw the final result? Yeah, I think through the process, I had the same tone that you just kind of stated the question. And I was like, eh, why is this taking so long? It felt like they, they should have made, maybe made a move kind of at least a couple weeks before. But then I stu- uh, kind of stepped back and said, well, uh, in comparison to the OC search of last year, we still have a bunch of time. And the OC search of last year, obviously the Cliff Kingsbury happened, then Graham Harrell in, and ultimately it was a great hire and took a lot longer. So then I kind of was like, yeah, well, they're fine. They let, uh, let them kind of sort out the candidates and see who the best guy is. And then once Orlando's name came out there, uh, I liked the hire. I think as an SC fan, oftentimes we want the splash hire because we feel like, hey, that should be us. We should be able to go out and get any defensive coordinator we want. That's not the state of USC football right now, but the fact that you're able to get to a guy to go get a guy that has done it. I mean, he has a track record of of coordinating elite de- defenses. The counter to that statement is he also has a track record of falling off a little bit and at, at season two or three, uh, maybe not having the most success. And so I think it's a mixed bag there. I think you'd like to think that with SC's talent, that that, that could be a positive. I think also. A lot of my opinion uh, opinions on this hire is a, doesn't have a lot to do with X's and O's. And what I mean by that is Orlando is a fiery guy. I think sergeant's a word that you hear uh, about him in terms of kind of that mentality of tough and, and, and hard nose versus Clancy Pendergrass, that wasn't his mentality. Not that he was soft, but personality was not a, a, uh, a, a strong suit, I would say, for Clancy. I don't think it was a negative, but I think it was just a wash versus Orlando you better believe that first practice, that first meeting, he's going to have guys' attention. And I think I like the hire just in the mere fact that it's a different voice that's going to be yelling at these guys. It's human nature in any industry throughout this world. Anytime you have a new leadership in there and it's a different voice, it's a, we went from one personality, now we're going to the totally opposite. I think players will be receptive to that. And this, like you said, the, the track record of first season success, I could definitely see that under Todd Orlando, an experienced guy that uh, you better believe he has a chip on his shoulder like a lot of these players do, where Todd Orlando, he was the big fish a couple, a few years back. He was the up and coming guy, and now he's kind of got knocked off a little bit. Well, a lot of these SC players and this SC program's in a similar, a similar vein, right? All the hype. All the, all the potential and all that, well, we've got knocked down the past couple of years. So I think the personality trait or mindset could be a, a strong pairing for a lot of these guys. Yeah, I mean, he comes out the day his hire is announced, and they posted a video with a little Q&A they did with him, USC did with him. And he comes out, and it's almost like he was talking to the fans. He says, <laughs> practice is going to be physical. There's no way around it. You can't practice soft and play hard. I'm a true believer of that. And what has been the biggest criticism, fair or not, of the way Clay Helton has run this program, has run practices, is that they don't tackle enough in practice. It's not, it's not uh, tough enough in practice, and it shows on, on Saturdays. I'll be they're, curious. They're, listen, they're listening to the fans. I mean, that was a clear-cut evidence that uh, this uh, no-tackling mentality of years past, it sounds like it's going to change, but we'll see come spring ball. I mean, that was my takeaway. It, it was – it was we we we've heard the criticism. We're going to address it head on. This is our guy. And this is what he says. I'll be curious to see how he and Clay mesh if they have 
different philosophies about how to run practice. I mean, that's stuff we're going to learn more once spring ball starts. So we can't really get into that today, but that's definitely a question I have going forward. But like you, I like the hire and you know, I, I did a lot of stuff last week when this came out. I wrote a column, the analysis piece, so people kind of know where I stand. But just to kind of rehash it, there was a lot of mixed reaction I saw on Twitter, on our Trojan Talk message board about it. And, and I don't quite understand that because my counter is, what were you expecting to happen? Like, USC is not in a position to pry away an established top defensive coordinator who's in a comfortable job. It's just not going to happen. Everyone knows that Clay Helton is again on the hot seat in 2020, and his future beyond 2020 is again in doubt. You're not getting Brent Venables to jump from Clemson. That's an extreme hyperbole example, but just I, I don't know who, who the fans thought was in play here. Yeah, um, what, and I think your point about mixed reaction too, I think it goes on both sides. There was a mixed reaction on the Texas front when he was let go. There was a portion of their fans that said, well, wait a sec, that, that feels a little scapegoaty on right. uh, on Texas's side as well of, hey, this guy, he did really well for us the past or two years ago, meaning uh, Orlando, and this past year Texas was absolutely decimated with injuries. I know me being doing some of the national analyst stuff I do throughout the season, that was a clear-cut headline of, is this Texas defense, they like last year they struggled, but man, they were beat up. And so there was a pocket of Texas fans that were saying, hey, why are we letting this guy go? Which if you're a USC fan, that, that's, an ex- that's a promising sign because it's not like we're getting some uh, – uh, just kind of leftover, leftover guy from a different program. Exactly, and the fact that they changed out both coordinators there kind of lends you to believe that there's a lot going on in that program right now, and it kind of needed a reset in, in many ways. And you, you don't write off the fact that the defense struggled, but you have to look at it in full context and say, well, they just kind of cleaned house with their coaching staff, and they had all these injuries. Maybe it wasn't just Tyler Orlando. I, I'm not giving them a pass, but I'm just saying I, I don't fixate too much on that. When this guy's been a coordinator at five different schools, has produced four defenses that have ranked in the top 13 nationally, UConn, Utah State, and Houston, he had uh, defenses ranked that highly. And his first year at Texas, he had a dramatic turnaround. He gets there. They jump from 94th to 41st in total defense and 89th to 29th in scoring defense. Yeah, things went down from there, but he's shown he can do it, and he's done it at numerous stops. So when I'm seeing the mixed reaction, the people who think it's an underwhelming hire, who are you going to get? And when they fired Clancy Pendergast, I put out my list of reasonable candidates, guys that I thought made sense for various reasons. I think I had seven names on there. My top two were Charlie Strong, the former head coach at Texas, Louisville, South Florida, who is out of a job now and is a established defensive coordinator. I had Tyler Orlando second on my list just because of that experience factor. He's been a coordinator at UConn, at Florida International, at Utah State, at Houston, at Texas. He's done it. He's had success. I'm not sure that there was a better option on the market for, for USC. And there was a lot of rumors about Joe Barry, the the Rams linebackers coach who's been a, a coordinator twice in the NFL. And uh, according to the LA Times, he turned the job down. Well, my goodness, that's a blessing in disguise. I, I, that would have been an, an underwhelming hire to me. Joe Barry is a twice-failed coordinator in the NFL with the Redskins in Detroit. I mean, tough, play, tough, tough circumstances, tough places. But what are you keying in on there with him and saying, okay, yeah, this is why this guy's going to make the difference here. He hadn't proven it in the NFL. He's been a position coach. That would have been 
a hire of convenience, a high, an underwhelming hire, the kind of stuff that everyone will criticize Clay Helton for, for not having enough of a reach in the, in the market. Well, no, he goes out and gets Tyler Orlando, a guy he's never worked with, a guy he has no connection with, and one of the most experienced guys available. Yeah, I think uh, it's it's a fair point. I think if, if Clay Helton's on uh, the hot seat and this, I mean, we thought last year was make or break, but if this year is definitely make or break, you can put Tom Herman in a similar conversation in terms of he's at year three at Texas coming up. I mean, this year for him is kind of make or break. And so it definitely feels like a scapegoat mentality rather than a true firing. So I don't mind the hire. I think maybe the one counter to our points is, could you go out and find a Graham Harrell-esque defensive coordinator, meaning a up-and-coming guy, a guy who's getting it done at a North Texas-esque school? I don't know who that guy is. I don't know if he's out there. The reality is a lot of those guys, I mean, there's other programs that are probably souping them up that probably have a better pitch than USC does at this point. But I think that's the one thing that maybe uh, a year ago the Graham Harrell uh, – Higher, I think, was very intriguing, and the overall tone was optimistic. Could you have gone and got someone similar? Maybe. I don't know. But the reality is, I think, for where USC is at right now, and you have to remember, a lot of these coaches, man, it's their jobs and their their careers on the line as well. If you if Clay Helton gets fired next year, they're without a job. And so it's not always as black and white as maybe we make it out to be. And I know a lot of the fans know that already. But uh, anytime a coach is leaving a job to then go take their chance with USC, it worked for Graham Harrell a year ago, but it doesn't always work that way. And sometimes guys are out of job and their, and their career takes a step back. So I think uh, the scenario at USC is very unique. But uh, all in all, I think I like the hire and we'll see moving forward how it nets out. Yeah, as I wrote after it became official, there was really only two kind of guys that USC could have gotten. The guy where the opportunity to move to USC is such a big promotion and jump in his career that it's worth the gamble and the risk of not knowing if the staff's going to be together a year from now, like with Graham Harrell. The other guy is a guy who's available due to circumstances in his career and needs an opportunity to prove himself, like a Tyler Orlando. Those were the two guys that they were going to be in play for. That's it. You weren't, again, you weren't prying away an established guy from anywhere else. And there were some... Young up-and-comers, Zach Arnett, the former San Diego State defensive coordinator, who got hired by Syracuse and then got hired away from Syracuse a week later, was the name on the list. That would have been one direction to go with kind of that Graham Harrell mold. But I think for Clay Helton, where everything's about 2020, I want to roll the dice with a guy that has been through the battles for the last two decades, has done it, and has shown he can make an immediate impact. So, again, you know, other names who were on the list – Chris Richard, who was obviously a former USC player, was a Seahawks defensive coordinator for a few years under Pete Carroll, and then was a Cowboys position coach and a defensive pass game coordinator. A lot of fans were high on him, but you know, that came with risk too because whenever you're a coordinator in a, in, a, in a machine, an established system like the Seahawks defense was when he got there, it's hard to know how much credit to assign. His two predecessors went on to NFL head coaching jobs. Uh, Gus Bradley and Dan Quinn. So, you know, do you look at that and say, oh, well, he's surely going to come and make an impact? You don't know. Uh, Dwayne Walker was mentioned, a former UCLA coordinator from 2006-2008 who had been at USC for one year. He had been a coordinator in, in 12 years. I mean, those were the kind of names that were circulating. So all things considered, I like Tyler Orlando. But the main point of this podcast is to really lean on Max's analytical 
insight and kind of give you a better sense for what to expect now that Tyler Orlando is here. He is the coordinator. What impact can he make in 2020? Max, let's just start generally. Kind of break down his scheme for us, if you could. Yeah, totally. I think the biggest thing that sticks out is at least his past couple years at Texas, it's been just about all three down fronts. And basically for, for listeners, I mean, defenses are a three down front or four down front. Uh, Clancy was known for being a versatile defensive coordinator in that you were going to get both. Sometimes you were going to either, gonna, you were also going to get five down fronts, but by and large, Tarolando is a three down front guy. That's very intriguing to guys like myself and football junkies because that means that USC's defensive personnel is probably going to have to shift a little bit. Guys are going to have to fall into different different roles and uh, just different duties because of this true three down front mentality. A perfect example is Marlon Tui Pelotu, who was a true defensive tackle last year. I envision that him and a Brandon Peely will be now a traditional nose tackle, which means they will line up in front of the center, face mask to face mask, the majority of the game. That's not a universal uh, statement, but by and large, that is true. So those little nuances will be different just schematically. I think another thing that jumps out to me is last year he played a lot of off coverage. USC in the past has not played off coverage uh, a little bit here and there, but mainly they've been a press coverage team. That's intriguing, especially when you have a secondary who's coming back in USC that is very good, should be one of the best in the Pac-12, should be an elite group. The fact that that schematic difference is in play, that's just an adjustment. If I had to guess, I would bet that he might stick with more uh, press coverage capabilities just because SC has the talent there. Oftentimes when you see off coverage, it's because there's less lesser talent there and it's almost kind of a plain scared mentality or not trying to give up the big play mentality. But uh, yeah, the three down lineman, the 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 uh, off coverage, and then he also has mixed in three three five defenses. And there's a lot of linebackers moving around. There's a lot of defensive backs, nickel backs mo- moving around. He does a lot of stuff, for lack of a better term, which is great because it confuses the defense. That's what he's kind of made his mo on is maybe a little bit of a boom or bust mentality where we're trying to we're trying to create that turnover. We're moving a lot of guys around. And uh, I think that all kind of centers in, the, in, in one key point in that he's a linebacker-focused uh, defensive coordinator, which that to me is very encouraging for a guy like Pallier Neoteote because we're, he's a guy that you really want to come on this next year. Uh, but I think he, move, he, he uses these linebackers in a bunch of different ways. They're moving around. There's a lot out there. Hence the fact that you have one less defensive lineman and you're moving defensive backs around. Well, what is that conducive to? That's conducive to kind of another linebacker getting in there. The three, four front just inherently in football is the three down lineman uh, kind of suck up the gaps and the linebackers make the plays. That wasn't necessarily always the case in USC's past defenses. So if you're a linebacker, I think I'd be encouraged, encouraged in this USC defense. Uh, but it, it, I think a lot of it will be Todd Orlando getting to spring ball and saying, all right, here's the personnel I have. Here's the scheme I have. All right, what's the right fit? And we can get into it, but I think uh, Drake Jackson and where he fits is one of the most intriguing storylines for me in the spring yep. ball in the offseason because if he's the best defensive player at SC or him and Talanoa, however you want to say that, 1A, 1B, Drake Jackson should never leave the field. But under this new front that Todd Orlando is going to bring, how does he fit in there? That to me is a fascinating storyline. 
Yeah, perfect segue. I, I wanted to go through each level of the defense and just kind of talk about how this changes things. And, and let's start with Drake Jackson. As you mentioned, it's, it's an unanswered question. We're going to see what happens in the spring. But what's your gut feel? Uh, they know they have a major asset there. They have a guy who who was uh, one of the best true freshman defensive ends in the country, who led the team in sacks and tackles for loss. How do you fit him into this new scheme and, and, and still leverage what he does well? My gut reaction is that you see a lot of reports that he has the 3-3-5 three, three, defense, three D linemen, three linebackers, five DBs. I think he will stay away from that because here's why. I think he'll, he'll, he'll rely more on base 3-4 defensive principles. And oftentimes that four means you have an outside linebacker like on the line of scrimmage, oftentimes standing up. That's how I view Drake Jackson. At 275, some of you guys might be saying, Max, he's way too big to have that position. Or, and especially after another offseason, if he's up to 285, that is a huge 3-4 outside linebacker at the college level. But the reason why I think that is I do not think him with his hand down and the 3-4 structure as a defensive end in 3-4, I don't think that's conducive to his athletic skill set, which is, as we saw this past year, making plays on the edge. A 3-4 defensive end doesn't make plays off the edge. They uh, stiffen up gaps, they take on two blocks, and they let linebackers make plays behind them. That, to me, is not conducive to Drake Jackson's skill set, so I envision It'll be a lot of standing up. It'll be a lot of him into the boundary. And it'll be a lot more kind of three, four principles with that four being the outside linebacker on the edge. That's how I see him. And I also think that kind of goes on the flip side of when you look at a Connor Murphy, you look at a Nick Figueroa, you look at a Caleb Trembe, you look at a J2 Fele, they, to me, are prototypical 3-4 defensive ends. So unlike what I just said about Drake Jackson, these guys, all four of those names I just listed, they're maybe not as athletic as you want a true 4-3 four, uh, four, defensive end to be, where they're making plays on the outside, but they're still big enough to kind of withstand interior defensive line pressure. For that reason, I think all four of those guys will be good 3-4 defensive ends, and it'll free up Drake Jackson to make more plays on the edge. Okay. Well, you mentioned the guy that I was curious about, JT Feli. Obviously, he was an interior lineman for them uh, these past couple of years and did really well getting behind the line of scrimmage and making impact plays in the backfield. How much has his role changed if he's going to be in that 3-4 end role? And, and do you think his skill set translates to putting up the same kind of stats he's been putting up the last few years? Yeah, it's a good question. I think uh, the first part of your question, so if uh, Jay was a, this past year was oftentimes kind of a 4-3 defensive tackle. He, If Marlon was the one technique, which means he's the shade, he's kind of right on the center of guard, and Jay was more on the guard tackle, to me I think he's going to have a similar role in the fact that he's going to have to take on double teams and whatnot, but this time obviously instead of having a defensive tackle next to him that's in a similar position. Now he'll just be in an end position. I think stats-wise, so I guess check that. His role, his mindset, I think it stays relatively the same. I think he's conducive because he's athletic enough to be a defensive end type guy, but he's stout enough to be a defensive tackle. That's the perfect blend for a 3-4 defensive end. So I like that. What I don't like if I'm Jay Tufele is this defense is not conducive to putting up the same stats. Why? Because... At that 3-4 uh, defensive end, you're having to take on double teams. A guard and a tackle are both hitting you before they go to the linebacker. That's not conducive to putting up big stats. That's why in this Orlando defense, it's linebacker friendly because a guy like J. Tufele takes on blocks 
and then a guy like EA makes the tackle. So stats-wise, I do not think it'll be as strong for Jay, but that doesn't mean, I mean, uh, production-wise, it doesn't mean it has to, uh, to drop. Just because he's not getting the tackle doesn't mean he's not producing, but uh, obviously stats and tackles and TFLs are what these guys want. I would, uh, I would not be surprised if it takes a slight step back just because of the scheme this year. Yeah, well, building off that, he's obviously a guy who, who who we were watching to see if he would come back or or leave early for the NFL. He was eligible as a as a third year sophomore this past year. He came back. Do you think that he can still find a way to boost his draft stock, even if he's he's changing his role as we've just discussed, and it won't have maybe the numbers to to show progress from last year? Uh, how, how can he still help his draft stock? Yeah, without a doubt. I think it's exactly what you just said. If he excels and does his job in this new in this new scheme, if then if I'm a GM, I'm saying, all right, sweet. I saw his freshman and sophomore year. He was a true defensive tackle. And yeah. then his junior year, he or I guess, yeah, junior, senior year goes uh, – goes to more of a, a defensive end, a 3-4 defensive end, then I'm saying, sweet, it doesn't matter who my defensive coordinator is, I can find a spot for J2 Fele. So I think uh, stats-wise, even if it isn't as sexy this year, uh, not saying it wouldn't be, I mean, shoot, he's a beast. Maybe he still puts up numbers, but uh, I know historically with these type of defenses, usually defensive end is where the stats maybe take a step back. Uh, and, and so we'll see, but I, I think just – uh, reacting to a new scheme and excelling in his role uh, could definitely help him a year from now when he's prepping for the draft. Good stuff, good stuff. So let's move it on to the linebackers. And I think maybe the initial reaction when people uh, digested the hire and looked at what Tyler Orlando does, maybe their biggest concern was does USC have the linebackers to do what he wants to do? Um, obviously, it was kind of an underwhelming position group last year. Uh, I know we had many John Houston discussions. He he was a steady <laughs> senior, but you know, EA did not take the leap forward you wanted. Kanai Malga had some nice flash moments, but maybe wasn't the most consistent player out there. Uh, they have Jordan Yosefa coming back after missing the whole year with injury. We barely saw Raylan go forth last year, uh, so th- they have some bodies in there. But do you think they have the the players that fit what Todd wants to do from the linebacker position? Yeah, I'll kind of give a little synopsis on all, all those guys you just kind of listed out because I think they're all different. I think starting with Pellier, uh, to me, that he's he is the number one guy that I like in terms of spring ball. Who am I looking at? He's probably the number one guy because the past couple years he's been the young guy. He's been the the the, the learning guy. It's been all right. John Houston's kind of the old guy. EA's a young guy. How does he fit? Well, now he's an upperclassman. Now this is his defense. Uh, and to me, I think when you talk about Todd Orlando, he's a guy that does a bunch of different things schematically. From our end, EA is a guy that from the reports, I don't know the guy personally, but from the report, from what I hear, he's a guy that struggles a little bit X's and O's wise in terms of keeping up with what a defense is doing. We've talked about, hey, does a defensive coordinator need to simplify things for him? So to me, that's a potential concern. If Orlando is going to come in here and ask EA to be the leader of the defense, communicate everything, get guys lined up. Oh, and by the way, he's still doing a lot schematically. That to me is where uh, Palia needs to, 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 to grow up a lot in this offseason and, and get better there. But the reality is if he has NFL aspirations, he's going to have to do that either way. I'm not asking him to do something special. I just think that needs to happen ASAP if you're Palia. I think look at a guy like Kanai. I think he's going to have a big role. Kanai Malga, he's going to have a big role. They're going to look for him to fill that other linebacker spot in a John Houston. But to me, the, the question with Malga is, is he disciplined enough 
to get this 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 scheme down. Orlando brings a, di- a lot of different blitzes from different uh, spaces. He's having linebackers move around a bunch. And so if you're an undisciplined player, that's not a good sign because if you're out of your gap or you don't blitz or you blitz when you're not supposed to, that's how you get torched as a defense. So I think Malga, as he gets older, can he settle into his spot and, and, and really lock in, which that's what that's that's progression you want to see from a young guy to an older guy. I'd expect Malga to have a, a definitely elevated role. One of the most intriguing guys to me is a Jordan Iosefa. Why? Because he has done that stand-up defensive end spot. He has done the traditional middle linebacker spot. It's guys like him and guys like a Hunter Eccles, these tweener guys where if you're Todd Orlando, those are the guys that if I'm a defensive coordinator, I'm finding ways that these guys can make an impact. Because if you are going to move around a lot, you are going to have guys standing up and blitzing and pretending they're going to blitz and drop into coverage. Those athletic Hunter Eccles uh, and ISF type guys, those guys could really find their niche. And on the flip side, they also could maybe get get brushed under the rug a little bit if they are in that awkward I'm a defensive end, I'm a linebacker, I'm not I'm an outside linebacker, I'm inside linebacker, who knows, but I think those guys and Abdul Malik McLean, some of those athletic guys, if I'm Todd Orlando, I'm very excited about those guys, but it's going to be a, it's going to be his job and the player's job to kind of find what lane they go in. Uh, and so that, that that to me is is very interesting. And then, like like you said, Ryan, we we went back and forth on John Houston all year. Whatever your stance is on G- John Houston, it's very clear that the reason John Houston played is because there was not confidence in the guy behind him. And so this offseason, a lot of those young guys need to step up. They need to grow up. They need to be consistent. They need to line up. All those things are paramount, especially if you're bringing in a defensive coordinator that likes to mix things up and likes to bring a lot at you. Those young guys got to, uh, got, got to lock in on the, uh, in, in the playbooks this offseason. Yeah, well, you kind of touched on my next question was those um, those guys who were the outside linebackers last year, the the edge rushing outside linebackers like Hunter Eccles, you mentioned Abdul Malik McLean. There's still a place in, in Orlando's scheme for them to kind of function in the way they have in the past? My, my answer to that is yes, just because I know those guys are good football players. But right now, it's a definite kind of we'll see. I think in spring ball, it would not surprise me at all if you saw one type of defense one week, and then in week two, we see a different defense, and then in week three, we see a different schematic defense, and they're just testing things. Because I think it's going to be Orlando's job to say, how do I want to do this? Do I want to do... Uh, do I do I want to like like we talked about with a Drake Jackson? Where is the best fit for him? All these athletic guys, some might stand up, some might rush the passer. Is it an element where we're just putting all those guys out there and uh, offensive linemen are having a nightmare trying to line up with who's a linebacker and who's a defensive end? I think yes, there's a place because these guys are great athletic football players. But I think uh, that's going to be Todd Orlando's job is to see how all those guys fit, and it would not surprise me at all if there's some quote-unquote position changes and, and guys taking on different roles. But I think that's a huge wait-and-see element that is probably the number one uh, biggest question for me this spring ball. Before we move off this group, let's just go back to EA one last time because he just is, in my eyes, one of the most pivotal players for the year ahead. From your perspective, what would be an, an, an ideal usage and execution by EA next year? Kind of... Uh, if he's going to have a great season, what's it look, what's it look like, and 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 what roles he playing, and and what is his impact on the game week to week? To me, right now, he is your middle linebacker. 
I, I, I'm not huge on him being an outside linebacker in this scheme, only because I've seen from the <laughs> from the hour long of, of tape I've watched, Orlando, he, he's bringing guys from different angles. He's asking a will linebacker to blitz and a defensive end to drop and vice versa. And I think when you ask Pallier from his track record, when you ask him to account for a lot uh, in terms of blitzing, coverage, all that stuff, uh, faking things, then backing out, that's where maybe he gets in trouble. I would try to get him in a role where, Pallier, you're our middle linebacker. You're, you're lining up relatively in the same spot every time. And I know when people hear me say that, middle linebacker, that's going to be the leader and all that stuff. Well, bring it on. That he, Pallier, he was the number one uh, linebacker recruit. He should want that pressure. I like him being at the middle linebacker and, and, and having his role be, hey, let's run around, let's fly, fly around, let's make tackles, let's funnel everything in the run game to you type of deal. I love that role for him. I think he can take it on. And I think uh, more so the, the Will linebacker and the Sam linebacker, that's to me where you can get really creative with a Hunter Eccles, with a Greg Johnson, with a does a, does a Talanohu Funga drop down there in certain spots. Interesting. To me, to, to me, I like keeping EA at one spot. He's tunnel vision. This is what he does. He's rocking number one. He's a single-digit middle linebacker for USC. Let's make him the middle linebacker and have him grow into that role this offseason. Okay, so that brings us to the secondary, the defensive backs. And if there is a statistical blotch on Tyler Lando's record, it's that his defenses have given up a lot of passing yards uh, pretty much every year. All three of his Texas defenses ranked in the hundreds in pass defense. Uh, this last year they were 127th, uh, giving up 292.5 passing yards per game. Obviously, you mentioned at the top they were decimated by injuries, particularly in the secondary. So that's a factor, but it's still been a, a common thread uh, with his defenses. Even when he had some really good units at Houston, they they were ranking low in pass defense. It's it's just a byproduct of a system, I guess. Is, is there any way around that, or is it, should we just expect that USC is going to give up a lot of yards through the air this year? No, I think this is uh, one of the more encouraging parts, actually. I think it was a national headline last year, that, uh, or this past season, that, that Texas Texas's secondary was decimated by injury. I kept my eye on them a little bit just for some of the national work I do, and I even knew that. I was saying, hey, this, this, this secondary is really struggling. So the fact that SC is bringing back a secondary that is extremely strong, and that's not a question. It's not like we're saying, well, yeah, our secondary wasn't that great last year, and we're bringing in a defensive coordinator that's not that great with, with, with secondary. No, this secondary is already established. I don't, yes, you want these guys to get be, to get better and develop and all that stuff, but the fact that this is a strong suit, I think it it's uh, conducive to Todd Orlando saying, all right, now I don't have to worry about my secondary. Let me just call my defense. So I love it. I just okay. think the interesting part to me is when you talk about Okay, if, if, if in large part as a defensive coordinator, it's your job to get the best 11 players on the field. Well, last year, I mean, if, if the four best secondary players are OG, uh, Isaiah Palomao, Talanoa, uh, ITS, I guess I said four, I meant five, but Chris Steele's in there as well. You have five players. And then you talk about this 3-3-5 scheme and what you can do, and you can do a bunch of different things. I know they're probably going to try to find packages where all five guys are in there, or do you just keep rotating corners? That to me is interesting, but I think it's super, uh, super encouraging that the secondary is re- as long as they stay healthy. It's really not a position that we need to worry about because we've shown we, we've seen that these guys can ball out. I, I totally agree with that. Uh, the personnel is there; they should only get better this year. Uh, obviously, Greg Johnson is another guy we need to mention in that mix of, of returning guys. But I broke down, I put a chart together of of Todd's defenses the last ten years, and 
he never had a defense ranking the top 50 in pass in pass defense. And he, even when his Utah State defense in 2013 was 12th overall in yards allowed, they were 52nd in pass defense. It just seems to be the, the one vulner, vulnerability of his uh, scheme. Is, is there a reason for that? You see just because he's aggressive up front and he sells out yeah. against the run? Is, is that just kind of a byproduct of that? Yeah, I mean, first I need to watch more film to really get a take on that. I think two things – stick out to me right away when you say that. I know this past year, and I said it in, kind of in my open, they played a lot of off coverage, which I think that was conducive to kind of the, uh, or indicative, I guess you could say, of uh, the he did not have, have faith in his secondary, I guess is the simple way to put it. Sure. So you're giving up some easy yards. Uh, and the second part, I think, is when you are blitzing and you are dialing up pressures and you are kind of uh, boomer bust, I guess you could say, the reality is sometimes you'll get to the quarterback and you'll create turnovers and it'll be all great and, and everything's awesome because you're 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 creating havoc. That's great. But on the flip side, when you are blitzing, you are you have less guys in coverage. You have vacated zones at times. And so if you're playing a functional quarterback, they can pick you apart if they uh if you don't get home. And I think at times that's what we've seen. That's really what we've seen uh, with Orlando's career throughout it all. It's hey, he's been elite at times. And then there's also been times where it hasn't been a strong suit. And I think that's a byproduct of maybe his mentality of we're going to mix things up. We're going to create havoc. And at times, if you catch us with, uh, with, our, with our, uh, our hands in our pants, whatever the term is, uh, we could be in trouble. And hopefully it's the, uh, the, the, the first case rather than the second. Yeah, I, I mean, on the flip side, he has traditionally had defenses very stout against the run. He has had defenses ranked very highly nationally in sacks. His defenses do force turnovers, so there has to be a trade-off somewhere. You, you can't, uh, you know, if you're going to emphasize one area, there's a, a cause and effect in another area. So you, you take it as a as a total package. Let's get into some of the guys specifically. Uh, you've hinted at Talanoa Hufanga a couple times. Obviously, one of USC's top returning players. How do you think his role changes, if any, in this scheme? I envision him being. He was already in inside the box, which uh, it means kind of close to the line of scrimmage for uh, for those I don't know. But uh, he's in, he was in the box a lot last year. I envision him being in the box a lot more this year. I think it'll be even more. And I say that just because when you do this scheme where you have a bunch of guys standing up and you have sort of five, three line yeah, that three linebackers, you kind of got uh, five defensive backs. There's a lot of uh, a uh, potential to move a lot of guys around. Well, that's what Talanoa does. I envision he's going to be up closer to the line of scrimmage. I envision they're going to uh, probably put him to the field a lot of the time to try to allow him to cover some ground and make some plays. Uh, I think this is where when you go get a Todd Orlando, and we talked about it with Drake Jackson, how is he going to handle his skill set? That to me is the most intriguing guy. But then the second guy is Talanoa because of what Talanoa can do so much uh, how how do you play him out? I just think at the end of the day, he's so valuable around the ball and around the the, 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 the line of scrimmage. You'd be crazy not to put him there. And uh, I would not be surprised that as I kind of look at my depth chart right now, like if Greg Johnson was your nickel last year, are there elements where Talanoa plays a little bit of nickel this year, especially with these this young secondary kind of coming up and, and you can have guys just play coverage and Talanoa around the ball. I think that dynamic of, Greg Johnson, Talanoa, playing around the ball, playing in the box, moving things around, blitzing, and then in coverage. That, to me, feels like a great marriage there between a Todd Orlando defense and a Talanoa Hufunga skill set. Okay, so let's let's tie this all together. Um, and we've probably covered these answers, but we'll just sum it up. 
in your eyes, who is the biggest beneficiary of this hire on this USC defense? And who's the guy who's probably uh, most concerned right now about, hey, how's this going to look and what's my role? Um, I will say um, biggest beneficiary. I think um, I'll go – I think you can take it a bunch of different ways. I'll, I'll just kind of uh, speak what I'm saying. I think if you're Pellier, no, it's Ote, I think – you're sitting at home right now. I think it's pretty fair to say that he probably hasn't been super pumped on how his first two years went in terms of the the, the hype he came into school with and kind of where he's at now. So the fact that you're getting a defensive coordinator that from our end it feels like they're going to center, they're going to give EA every chance to really kind of take over this defense, especially with John Houston out. The fact that that happens, you're getting a, a defensive coordinator in Orlando that's a linebacker focused guy. Uh, that to me is very conducive. And then I also like, I really can't, I know what these, these names aren't the, the most popular USC football names right now, but the Connor Murphy, the Nick Figueroa, the Caleb Tremblay, uh, we obviously know who Jay Tufele is. While they're, they're, the stats might not show it, I really think the 3-4 scheme is conducive to those guys because they're not necessarily as athletic as true 4-3 defense, defensive ends. But they're big enough to play three, four defensive ends, and I think that. But and I say they're not as athletic, but they're still athletic. That kind of thing, that to me could be uh, could be very very uh, beneficial for those guys. Uh, and then secondary, I think it's kind of a wait and see game. I'm not sure how they're going to sit in there, but EA and then those defensive ends are guys that stick out to me. And and the guy who's who's most concerned right now to you, guy who's most concerned, I think. Uh, it, it gets to those edge guys, Hunter Eccles and yeah. Abdul Malik McLean. Exactly. Uh, those tweener guys. Those tweener guys, I think, uh, they know going into college that their skill set is kind of it, – it's going gonna, it's gonna to be make or break kind of on the defensive scheme. I would not be surprised if their parents are uh, having phone calls to Todd Orlando saying, how do you envision using my son or, or, or those type of things. Yep. And I think uh, it would not surprise me, and I hate going down this path, but after spring ball, if certain roles are determined and some of these guys aren't as happy, because we all know the deal, you can't. It, uh, it's going to be hard to play all of those guys. Sure, you could do it, but a lot of those tweener guys, there's usually only room for kind of one of those guys to truly take on a role, which that's kind of a wait and see game for me. Yeah, I, I think it's only natural to assume that there's going to be maybe some some movement uh, after spring practice as people get a better sense for where they fit into things. Juliana Falonico is another name that mm-hmm. I kind of put in that uh, that realm as well. All those tweener guys, that'll be uh, kind of a wait-and-see thing. Yep. So, you know, let's just assess where the situation is. USC brings back all but two defensive starters. They're only losing John Houston and Christian Rector, who – just, you know, for many reasons, didn't have the season the, that he wanted. And it's not going to be too hard to replace in terms of what he did last year. So the pieces are there. And yet this defense, and, and I didn't even realize this until after the season. I'm going back through the USC record book. and I'm trying to put it in perspective. USC gave up 408.5 yards per game, which was tied for 77th nationally. But it was the most yards ever given up by a USC defense. Ever. Yeah. And, and, and and really, uh, I think Clancy had like, like three of the five uh, all-time uh, worst in that regard. And then the, they gave it 29.4 points per game, which was the second worst ever behind only the 2000 season when they gave it 30.6. So, you know, A, that speaks to the standard of 
where USC's defense has been historically, and it clearly has not been there in recent years. But that leads to the question of what do you think is a realistic expectation for the impact Todd Orlando can make in his first season here? And before before you answer that, I'll get back to a point I kind of glossed over initially about what he's done in his first year at places. Let me just go through his last few stops. Uh, he takes over at Utah State in 2013. They already had a good defense, uh, but they – he kept it that way. They ranked 12th in yards per game and 7th in scoring defense his first year, 17, 17.1 points per game. He's there two years. He goes to Houston. It's actually his second season, which was really good. They, they were 53rd nationally his first season, then they're 13th his second season. So a really quick improvement from year one to year two there. Then, as I mentioned before, you go to Texas, where they just jumped uh, immensely from 94th in total defense to 41st his first year, from 89th in scoring to 29th. So that's, that's the evidence we cite when we say that he's had a history of making an immediate impact in places. Given that, what do you think is realistic, considering the personnel USC has back and the way they played last year, uh, to expect from Tyler Orlando in his first season? Yeah, I think it's realistic to not lower the expectations at all. I think his impact could be could could mean a championship, whatever that means. And if that means a Pac-12 championship, does that mean a Rose Bowl? Does that mean... Uh, College football playoff. I'm not there to say college football playoff, but I'm there to say Pac-12, sure. And I, I think it comes for two very basic reasons. One, SC's offense is going to be one of the best in the country this year. So you don't necessarily need a defensive coordinator to be absolutely groundbreaking. You just need a guy that can get the job done. Uh, that's one reason. And then um, I, I think the second reason is uh, kind of what I said in the open is, when you, these players got so used to Clancy over the years, right? And Clancy's a very unemotional guy. He is not a rah-rah guy. He's not a guy that's going to really move the needle either way when it comes to personality. Well, now all these guys are going to sit in to sit in their chair come spring ball, and they're going to have a different, more general-like uh, approach in Todd Orlando, and that that alone is going to, I think, going to perk guys up in their seat a little bit. It's going to uh, spark a fire in a lot of these guys where they're competing again for positions. It's going to just be a different guy that's getting on you, and I think that alone is going to be healthy for this SC defense. And I hate to kind of dumb it down, but I feel like anytime you make a change, no matter who comes in, the fact that it's a fresh perspective I think is healthy. I think that's what this defense needed outside of X's and O's, outside of past and future, whatever, just the fact that it's a new guy, I think, uh, could make waves. And with this offense being so good, those two factors, I think, could be uh, could be really encouraging. And I don't think the standard needs to be lower at all when uh, with Todd Orlando coming in. I totally agree with you. And let's go back to this past year. What was the biggest difference between 5-7 and seven and 8-5, and five, ultimately? It was the offensive improvement in year one under Graham Harrell. Okay, so they addressed the offense. They got it moving in the right direction. They got a lot more out of the talent they have there. If the same thing happens defensively, who's to say they can't go from 8-4, from 8-5 and four, eight and five to, to 10 wins or, or 11 wins? I know that just USC fans don't think it's even conceivable that a Clay Helton team could do that, but if you just look at it logically in, in the context that we're speaking here, if the defense is better, the offense is not going to be worse next year. It's only, it's only going to be better if... You have a, a healthy Keaton Slovis for the full season. Everyone now knows this system. Uh, we all know that they took off over the second half of the season offensively. So if you carry that over and then they're kind of just picking up where they left off, the offense is going to be at least as good, if not better. If the defense is a little better, 
that adds up to more wins. That adds up to maybe this can be a really special season. And I, I'm not going to make any predictions right now. We're a long ways from that. But I, I don't know. I, I see a roadmap to a different outcome here, like, like, like you mentioned as well. Yeah, and I think uh, I'm not sure what our timing's like, but your offensive comment, I think a lot of that will depend on the offensive line. Obviously, Austin Jackson going away. How does the offensive line kind of progress? I thought Jackson was going to come back, and that would be very conducive to this offensive line taking a huge step forward in 2020. Do they take a step back? Do they just kind of maintain? I think that's another uh, interesting storyline when you talk about spring ball, but you're right. I think uh, those historic USC defensive numbers you pulled up, I think we also, all of us need to kind of take with a grain of salt because when you are having a Graham Harrell offense on the other other side, it does put more pressure on your defense. They're facing more plays. It's it's kind of the new era of football, so those numbers will be slightly inflated. Not saying it's the total, total reason, but I think that the reality, it, it, the reality is, if you're Todd Orlando, if you just keep teams in the 20s, SC should win just about most games. For a lot of these defenses around the country, you're asking your defensive coordinator to keep team to keep teams in the teens. That's a lot harder to do. Luckily enough for Todd Orlando, that's not necessarily going to be the ask. He's not going to be asked to come in here and be Superman. He's just going to ask to come in here and, and do a solid job and uh, not see some of the busts and maybe some of the missed tackles that we saw in the past. Let's just be locked in and uh, do our assignment. Yeah, you mentioned the offensive line. Uh, I want to do a segment on that. But to close the book on Tyler Orlando, one last point I want to make is the recruiting impact. And, you know, there were reports as, as, he, as he was let go at Texas that he wasn't recruiting as much as, or up to the level they wanted to. He didn't produce the results they wanted to in that regard. That may be. I, I, they would know better than me. I wasn't following Texas recruiting that closely. What I do know, though, is he is at least a more active recruiter than Clancy Pendergast ever was or ever uh, will be, and that matters. And I, I, I posted this on the board a few times, so for our our uh, Trojan Talk followers, this is going to be repetitive, but I cite a personal anecdote. When I went out to see Justin Flo, the five-star linebacker, at Upland High School last spring, there was uh, four college coaches there. There was a, a, a linebacker's coach from Florida. There was a position coach from another school. And then there was Todd Orlando, the defensive coordinator from Texas, had flown up during the spring to personally be there as as the face of their recruitment for Justin Flo. I can tell you that Clancy Pendergast wasn't flying to Texas or to anywhere else to to visit the recruit. He he was very not part of the process until the very end when he would get brought along on some final in-home visits or or make some final calls or texts. So, and that that was a... A major obstacle for them the last couple of years, as their recruiting started to to turn downward, it became a major problem having a, a non-active recruiter and a major role in staff, and that's why that's not the only reason, but that, that's one reason why they never really had much traction for a guy like Flo or for some other top guys. So I'm not saying that Todd Orlando is going to overhaul their recruiting overnight, but I like the upside of a guy that we know to at least be active and, and engaged in that process. We'll see how it tra- translates and, and manifests. Okay, uh, one last point on the staff, and then we're going to close with the offensive line. And I'll make another recruiting comment here. USC has been very active in the state of Texas this last year, and that should only increase further because think about this now. This is their staff. Graham Harrell, Texas Tech quarterback, Spent almost his whole life in Texas, coached in Texas, etc. Mike Jinks, 
longtime Texas high school coach before he uh, joined the college ranks. Deep connections there. Uh, John David Baker, quarterback at Abilene Christian, came up coaching in Texas. And Seth Dogie, he was also a Texas Tech quarterback um, with Harrell. You have Orlando, who just spent his last five years in the state, two years at Houston, three years at the Longhorns, coaching and building recruiting networks in Texas. Craig Navarre has spent most of his career in Texas. So expect a heavy emphasis to continue there. USC obviously signed two offensive linemen from the Lone Star State this year, and we'll see uh, how many more they get at all positions moving forward. Well, I mentioned offensive line. Let's close there. USC got pretty fortunate overall in terms of the draft-eligible underclassmen and their decisions. They only lose Austin Jackson, Jay Tufeli, Marlon Tuipolotu, Tyler Vaughns, Elijah Vera Tucker all decide to come back. Austin Jackson, the starting left tackle, leaves. He's a protected first-round pick, so that was an easy decision for him. But a major blow to the Trojans. They're already losing Drew Richmond, who was their starting right tackle, of course. So now they're out both starting tackles a position where they really had no depth. That's why they brought in Drew Richmond as a grad transfer last year, because they had no depth at tackle. What do they do at that spot, Max? I have some thoughts, but let's start with yours. Yeah, I think uh, to start, I actually was surprised. I thought Austin Jackson would come back. I thought, uh, I, I don't know, just with his offseason last year and from the interviews I had seen and talking a little bit, it, it felt like he was a guy that maybe was wired to come back and use an offseason to get that much better and that kind of thing, because... The reality is, if he had another, if he came back and had a great year, uh, you mentioned first round pick. He could have been a solidified first round pick, top end of the draft type guy. That's uh, true. I will I will say from uh, the work I've done, I'm pretty sure this is a weak offensive tackle class in the NFL. So that help helps his case and the fact that his stock should rise from there. But that's neither here, here nor there. He made that decision. Can't blame him. Fair enough. Uh, to me, I, I thought if he comes back, this offensive line is a group that could really take the next step because you're talking about really all the guys are coming back except for Drew Richmond. To me, that means you would move a Jalen McKenzie outside, and yep. then if that means a Justin Dedich fits in at the other guard, is that okay? Andrew Voorhees is back, and in what he's doing there, to me, that was very exciting. Now you lose Austin Jackson, and so now you have to replace both tackles. That, to me, is a little bit concerning. I think SC will figure it out. I think they'll be fine. But I do have concerns that they might not make the jump that us SC fans are expecting and are hoping. And that what is that jump? That jump is when BYU gives you drop eight and you need to run the ball consistently, can you get it done? I thought if Austin Jackson was coming back, I felt very confident SC could do that. Now with him not coming back, I have some concerns. Can a guy like Liam Jimmins, who's been a popular name in terms of a project guy or a high-ceiling guy, can he get in there and make things happen? Uh, Andrew Voorhees, I think he's a solid offensive lineman. I think he's definitely worthy of a starting spot if that uh, is need be. The one concern with me on him is uh, I just don't know how high his ceiling is. He's played a lot of football. So in terms of growth and, hey, he's really going to make big strides in this area – I don't necessarily think he's a guy. Sure, he can play, and he can play quality uh, quality downs for you, but in terms of replacing a first-round Austin Jackson, yeah, I'm concerned there. And then you get into some of the younger guys that have come up, and uh, I know it's a heavy offensive line recruiting class coming in, so if some of those guys can get uh, get rolling. But like you said, it, it's, it was a thin group last year, which is why they got more bodies. I think you have some project guys in, 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 the, in the loop right now. Uh, but I think that the group's going to be fine. If a year ago the group was almost an area of concern, I- I'm not that far. 
I just don't. I, I, I was hoping this group could become very good next year, and I'm war. I'm hesitant on how how, uh, how truly high their ceiling can be for this 2020 season. Well, I'll be I'll be honest. I'm more concerned than you are. I, not only do I worry about them not taking a jump, I worry about a step back, just because I don't even know what they're going to do. They they have essentially they have four four guards. They have gr- nice depth at guard, and they don't really have another ready ta- ready made tackle. Uh, Jason Rodriguez was their only freshman uh, tackle last year. I, I think he's got real potential, but I, I'm just not sure he's there yet, ready to step in. So it's it's about moving people around. Obviously, Jalen McKenzie goes out to one of the tackle spots, but what about the other one? Is is there any potential of moving Elijah Vera Tucker to left tackle just because he is your best offensive lineman? Maybe it's not his ideal position, but could he handle that? Is that a possibility? I don't think so. Yeah, uh, he he reminds me of your typical guard, and I yeah. say that has no disrespect, but just a little bit shorter, a little bit shorter arms. Right. Uh, I do not think he's a tackle, but. I get back to like Liam Jimmins. He's a guy that if you, I mean, uh, Ryan, I don't know if we've talked about him, but I know some people were excited about him. He's very athletic. Could he do that? But uh, I think it's going to be, and this is this is what college football is, right? Guys are going to have to step up. Jalen McKenzie, instead of being maybe kind of that tier two offensive lineman for SC, he has the build and the and the the ceiling. To, he needs to now be a tier one guy. Uh, but in terms of Vera Tucker. He seems to me he's locked in at left guard. A Brett Nealon locked in at center. Justin Dietrich, if he is, if your job as a coach is to get the best five on the field offensive line wise, is there room for him at guard? Then as a result, does that push a Andrew Voorhees outside to tackle? That's something we've seen a little bit here and there. All those things are going to kind of be a, uh, a a wait and see or like a younger guy like a Rodriguez. Does he come up and does he solidify things? I know when I played at SC, they they lost. Or uh, we lost, uh, what was it, uh, Matt Khalil. And then like a, a lower-named uh, Chad Wheeler puts on 60 pounds, 60, 70 pounds, three-star recruit from freshman year to sophomore year. And then he was uh, – or fresh, redshirt year to redshirt freshman year. And Chad Wheeler started at SC at left tackle for four years. So it's some of those project guys, there's a reason they're called projects because if they work out, they're obviously pleasing and kind of come from nowhere. Uh, maybe that happens, but depth's definitely a concern. And we saw it last year. Did they go the grad transfer route as well? I'm sure they're uh, they're going to be uh, having the, the transfer por- transfer portal notifications on high uh, this offseason. Yeah, I, I know for a fact that they are uh, scouring the, the transfer portal to see if there any, are any options like that. Um, if they don't get the grad transfer, I – I think that clearly Voorhees and Jimmins are probably part of your best five linemen. So you're talking about one of those guys, like you mentioned, going out the tackle, and we'll just see how they respond. It's definitely a major question to me. Talk I, about the- I think it's also worth noting, uh, too, and you hate to go down this road, but this offensive line stayed very healthy last year. I know Brett Nealon uh, went down a little bit there, and there was some banged-up uh, things at time. But by and large, in terms of guys missing extended periods of time or multiple guys missing extended periods of time, that did not happen. That was a luxury that SC never really had to worry about. Yes, we had to worry about that at running back, so we got our fair share of that. But uh, offensive line, uh, especially with cohesion being kind of a huge factor with that group, that's something yep. that not, did not happen last year that you cannot count on every year. you got to have depth in uh, right now. That's that's that we, we you got to find that depth in spring ball. As we talk about, what I would probably do personally is just try a lot of guys out of tackle. 
in spring and, and see who looks good there. I, I wouldn't predetermine my path at this point because, A, you want to make sure you have the right guy in that spot, and, B, like you just mentioned, you need someone else ready to step in if that guy gets hurt. They have the depth at guard. They can handle guard and center. They can handle injuries. They can't handle injuries at tackle to whoever ends up being those two guys. I think you got to get as much work as possible for various people in that spot. And among the incoming guys coming in, obviously they signed six offensive linemen. The, the top guy that bunch is four-star Jonah Monheim. I know that the USC staff is incredibly high on him, that they even thought that in their eyes he, he's a five-star caliber guy. That's what I was told. He projects more as a guard long-term, but he played tackle in high school, and maybe he's a guy to get some work there in the summer as well. We'll see. But that's the biggest question on offense. We covered all the questions on defense. That was a great breakdown, Max. I know uh, our listeners enjoyed that. I appreciate it. And good to be back on the podcast again. It's good to be back. It's good to be back. Noah, one last little comment I'll say. Uh, you mentioned your recruiting notes, and uh, I know you'll segue into this uh, recruiting yeah. after, but... To me, and I'll say this all off season when we talk, we can talk recruiting, who's great in the state of Texas and all that, but the reality is if you win, the recruits will come. If you lose, the recruits will not. The Texas thing to me is interesting. It's an interesting tidbit, but the reality is, as all our listeners know, this is USC. You should not really have to uh, go outside Southern California to find talent. And I know that's That's, ironic coming from a guy... It's ironic coming from a guy like me who's from Seattle and made my way down to uh, L.A., but the reality is, I mean, uh, I talk national, uh, all the Pac-12 uh, sometimes too, and Colorado, that's Colorado's game, is trying to find their niche in Texas. SC, uh, just win ball games and uh, hop in your car and drive 30 minutes, and you should be good to go recruiting-wise, but uh, it doesn't hurt that Texas is on the radar, but that's my one comment there, as uh, I'm sure you'll segue into recruiting. No, that's, that's a great point. That's a great closing comment from you. Go, <laughs> there you go but no it was fun go and, uh, good to be back yeah <laughs> no, exactly. it, it, it was good so yeah we'll, we'll let max go and i will talk as much as i can possibly talk about national signing day given the abject lack of buzz there is surrounding usc before i do the recruiting talk let me go back to the staff news from sunday like i mentioned uh we just let max go uh he and i had talked on uh, Friday before that stuff happened. So he and I didn't really discuss these latest changes, but I want to add my own thoughts here at the end of the podcast. Again, you certainly can't begrudge Todd Orlando, a new defensive coordinator, from wanting to bring in his guys. Ultimately, he has to put in his system and make sure that everyone under him knows how to run it, knows the intricacies, nuances, exactly what he wants out of it. And that's simply easier to do if you have as many already established pieces as possible guys who have already worked under him who know how to do that and again i'm just working off an assumption here that's the way he's going to go just like he hired craig niver from texas and i know you've you've heard me use just about every variation of the pronunciation of of craig niver but i'm pretty sure that's it and we're going to go with that until told otherwise but anyways you know, I think Greg Burns did a great job for USC last year. I, I, let's give him credit. He comes in with the toughest job on the staff. First year uh, back in the program, has almost no experience in the secondary, has literally no experience at cornerback. Brings that group along where they had a pretty solid three-man rotation with sophomore Elijah Griffin, redshirt freshman Isaac Taylor-Stewart, and true freshman Chris Steele. We're in camp last year watching Steele get flagged for penalties on pretty much every play in August. And I'm like, this is not going to work in the fall. 
and Burns made it a special focus to to coach him out of that to tell him, look, you don't have to do that. Like you are, your positioning is good. You you are in position to make these plays. Trust yourself. And he got him to break that habit, and and Steele had a, a pretty solid first season. You can say the cornerbacks maybe didn't finish as strongly as they started. That's fair. But overall, given what he had to work with in terms of no experience there, I think it did a nice job. And you can throw Dorian Hewitt in there too. He was a a true freshman who got some meaningful snaps at times. Then you go to safety, where they had the battle injury to Talanoa Hufanga. And you could say that Isaiah Polamau might have been the most improved player through the course of the season. He started the season pretty inauspiciously. He was having a lot of tackling issues. That was his major bugaboo. Burns really harped on that with him. And the telling teaching moment was late in the Colorado game. And remember, that's a close game. USC's fighting for a, a, a tight win there. And he pulls Polamau out for two series late in that game, puts Britton Allen in because he didn't think that Polamau was getting the message and he was making the same mistakes they had, they had harped on before. And he pulled him to the sideline, not to punish him, but to teach him and, and stood there with him and said, you have got to emphasize this. You've got to do this. Um, it was regarding his tackling. And he, he, he closes the season really strong. And I know – we always talk about the, the PFF grades, the pro football focus numbers, and I don't think that they're 100% spot on all time, but it's it's a nice database to pull upon and, and, and track trends and pull them out, finished as one of the highest rated tacklers on the team over the second half of the season, which was a complete opposite from the first half. So Greg Burns did a good job there. You can say that they didn't close the deal in recruiting on any of the DBs this cycle, so that's certainly a knock. But I don't think he's being let go because he can't coach. I think it's just Todd Orlando wants his guys who know exactly what he wants to do with the system. And we'll see who he ultimately hires. Uh, if he goes out and gets guys who he hasn't work, worked with before, that kind of debunks this whole theory that I'm, I'm spewing right now. But my expectation is that he knows who he wants for those spots, and that's why he's making the change. Otherwise, I think he would probably just stick with a guy like Greg Burns. Up front, uh, Chad Kauha'aha'a, the defensive line coach. Great guy to be around this last year. Always enjoy talking to him. You can certainly give him credit for helping Drake Jackson along in the breakout season. Drake Jackson, as we mentioned earlier in the podcast, was one of the most productive true freshman defensive ends in the country. I think he finished third among true freshman DNs in tackles for loss. Uh, if I recall correctly, led the team in sacks and TFLs. Uh, Chad K dealt with a lot of injury up front. Obviously, Christian Rector uh, for much of the season. Drake missed a couple games. Uh, Marlon Tupelotu missed a game. Now, where they weren't solid was, of course, protecting the edge and shutting teams down there. That's a collective responsibility. That's not just uh, on Chad K's group. That goes to the linebackers and everything else. So you can make your own evaluation as to how you feel he performed, but Again, as as Max noted, if if they're going from primarily a four down front to now a three down front, maybe uh, Orlando just doesn't feel that that's Chad K's strength, uh, or that again he just wants someone who knows exactly what he wants from those spots. Then there's Johnny Nansen, and I was surprised that this move, or really if they're going to make moves, I would have made them earlier, but. Nansen, 
uh, was obviously one everyone speculated about when they hired Todd Orlando because Orlando's always kind of coached the linebackers himself. That's that's his area of expertise. Nansen was the inside linebackers coach, and you didn't need two guys doing the same job. So when Nansen was initially not let go following Orlando's hire or earlier, I suspected that maybe he would get reassigned to special teams coordinator or, or do something else in the defense. But uh, this answers that, and, and he's out, and it's that one's pretty clear to see. Uh, you could also say that was again an underwhelming position group last year, so a new voice for those guys wouldn't have hurt anyway. But with that being Orlando's area of expertise, it just makes sense that he coaches that. So they have three spots to fill. They've got to figure out what to do special teams wise. They could ultimately opt to make that a collective responsibility. When I was covering Coastal Carolina earlier in my career. They were at the FCS level still. They were an FCS uh, playoff team every year, uh, had some great duels with North Dakota State. I mean, a, a really successful program. That was their philosophy towards special teams. They had every coach on the staff had an area of special teams that they were responsible for. So one guy was punt return. One guy was was punt coverage, et cetera, et cetera. And that's one way to do it where you're not tying up a one of your 10 coaching spots for just special teams as USC uh, did with John Baxter gave Baxter a lot of leeway a lot of practice time to vote the special teams I, listen I'm not saying that you minimize special teams it's clearly important and the fact that they struggled in that area was a problem uh, that's why Baxter's gone so you, you, you don't treat it as an afterthought but there are different ways to to achieve the result there and i you know maybe they have a special teams guru in mind that they want to hire maybe they don't and if they don't you can allocate those three spots differently and and maybe you bring in somebody who is a really good recruiter that you can now um hide on staff i don't mean that's too strong i don't want to say hide as in they can't coach but you can take more of a gamble on somebody who's not an experienced college coach but maybe would be a major impact on the recruiting trail and you can you can give him a position with lesser responsibility but he fits under that 10 coach limit i'm just i'm just spitballing here these are ideas ultimately i think that tyler lando probably knows exactly who he wants to bring in uh that's why it probably took him nine days from when he was officially hired to when these moves were made he was probably sorting through his his candidates looking at who was available who he could get and kind of had this all planned so we'll see how long it takes them to fill those spots i would guess it's probably not gonna be long uh, but that is to be determined okay recruiting it was a big 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 recruiting weekend for usc a big junior day the their as they call it their trojan made elite day I don't know how many kids were there. I was on campus all day. There was three busfuls of prospects and their parents. Uh, basically, they weren't doing any on-field work. This was just a time to get to know the coaches, to make relationships, to have fun. They, they were playing cornhole and, and other games with the coaches. Uh, athletic director Mike Bone was, was playing cornhole with the, with the guys and interacting with the families. It was almost like a kind of like a picnic uh, sort of vibe, if you will. They went over to the Coliseum, uh, took a bunch of photos there, you know, the, the traditional photo shoot. And it lasted a long time. It lasted from like 10 a.m. until like 2.30, uh, even longer for some guys. And, again, the point was just get in front of some of the top class of 2021 
2022 prospects. They doled out a handful of new offers to guys. They uh, kind of reinforced their emphasis on guys they've already been recruiting. And if you go on TrojanSports.com, I have a thorough breakdown. I kind of break down all the notable names who were there, all the new offers. I talked to a few of those guys who were offered. We also got reaction from other guys who were there about what was the vibe of things, uh, uh, what was your takeaway, what were their first impressions of Tyler Lando. And I got to say, I was I was most interested to hear that. I was most interested to hear, okay, this is the first time for many of these prospects to meet Orlando I was going to kind of be key in their recruitment moving forward. How did that go? And the the feedback was unanimously positive. And you can say, well, what else are they going to say? They're not going to talk to a reporter and, and say bad things. But you can also tell when you're just getting lip service and when you're getting actual genuine comments. I talked to Ethan Calvert, who's a four-star linebacker in the 2021 class from Oaks Christian. He was not there Saturday, but he actually had come Friday on his own visit. And he was just raving about Orlando, and I said, well, how much does that change defensive coordinator impact your thoughts on USC? And he goes, well, I always liked them, but I like them more now that he's here. Uh, and that was kind of consistent with the comments I got from a lot of guys. I just really thought he made a strong impression. Uh, he's, he's obviously a very high-energy guy. He's, he's an intense guy. They like that. That, that played well. Craig Niver also made a very strong impression. I talked to Devin Kirkwood, a three-star defensive back in the 21 class, and he said, I just, I just loved his down-to-earth approach and just the way he goes about things. So overall, it was a very positive, successful weekend. Now, what's successful mean? They didn't get any commitments out of it, but I think that the staff felt they made some real headway with some guys, that they got a chance to really get to know some guys better for the first time. And it was a good foundation event before we enter a recruiting dead period in February. So they, they utilized that weekend. Now, why were they doing a junior day the weekend before National Signing Day? Well, because there was no one else to bring in in this 2020 class. USC kind of is where it is. They have the 12 signees in the early signing period. And they I've been told all along they have three to four more spots to use. Now, I don't know how all that works out because on our scholarship distribution chart, I only show two more spots. Uh, There's things that we're not privy to. It could be a guy who was put on scholarship moving back to walk-on status. It could be more expected attrition, departures, transfer portal. You don't know. And you have to think that after spring ball, like I said earlier in the podcast, that somebody is going to be unhappy with their role in this new defense and might be hitting that transfer portal exit. But Three to four spots is kind of what they're working with. I don't know if they're going to get there on Wednesday. What we do know, and this news will probably come out as I'm posting this podcast, so this is going to be immediately dated in terms of three-star tight end Jack Geary, but I didn't want to hold up the podcast any longer. I wanted to get it posted. Jack Geary is announcing his decision on Monday. It's between USC and Washington. Geary obviously was committed to the Trojans, in uh since last spring through november he decommitted Uh, he didn't really feel good about the way they were using the tight ends understandably usc didn't didn't really throw that position much at all again this year but because his dad ron is a trojans legend and following his footsteps was always a big deal to jack usc remained in the picture and vice versa he took his official visit two weekends ago 
He hasn't really said a peep since, but there was you know certainly strong expectation that things might circle back to USC. We'll, of course, have all that coverage on the site. Like I said, by the time you hear this podcast, he will have already announced what he's doing, and we'll have the news on Trojansports.com. But he's he was the one name to watch this week, and then there's the running backs. USC has made a very, very aggressive approach for four-star running back Michael Drennan II from Dublin, Ohio. They badly need a running back in this class. They only brought in one last year. They're going to lose Stephen Carr and Vi Malapai after next season. And at that point, they're going to have two more scholarship backs on on the roster. They've got to get some guys in here to replenish that depth. And you know, maybe it's not needed next year, but it's definitely going to be needed after next year. And so, you know, this whole process has been frustrating on that front as they they really prioritized uh, Bijan Robinson, one of the top running backs in the country. They went all out for him. They thought they had a real chance. They they had one of their best official visits of the year back in the spring with him. Ultimately, he signed with Texas. They thought they had Ty Jordan uh, locked up a three-star all-purpose back from Mesquite, Texas. And in fact, Ty Jordan essentially told me in the spring that USC was was his top school. Things changed. He ends up committing to Texas and then flips to Utah. And that's just kind of the way it's gone, the cycle with the top running backs. They haven't really had much traction. They did have traction with Drennan. Uh, everyone's waiting to see what happens. It's been perceived that Kentucky is probably the favorite for him. Uh, Kentucky is you know, a few hours from his home in, in Dublin, Ohio. They've been recruiting him hard the whole process. One of his high school teammates is going there. And not only is USC waiting to see what he does and are the fans waiting to see what Michael Drennan does, but another running back is kind of hinging on that decision. Elijah Turner is a three-star running back from Georgia who did an official visit at USC two weekends ago and loved it. He does not have an offer yet or did not have an offer as of a few days ago. He was essentially told, we have this guy in Ohio that we're we're hoping we're going to get. If we get him, that's all we have room for. If we don't get him, we want to offer you a scholarship and give you that spot. So it's it's essentially if Drennan passes on USC, the expectation is they're going to offer Elijah Turner, and he's going to jump on that offer. He essentially told me, I talked to him after his visit, and he said, well, I, I couldn't pass up an opportunity like that. So if he gets the offer, expect him to jump in the class. Therefore, you think that they're going to get one of those two backs. And that's those are really the leads they have. They were very hopeful to get three-star quarterback Blake Shapin, Shapin, Shapin from uh, Shreveport, Louisiana. He had a very positive official visit two weekends ago. I talked to him afterward. I really got the sense that USC was the favorite there. He went on and on about how much he loved the program and loved the offense. And he said, I'm, I'm going to take this last visit to Baylor. We'll just kind of see how it goes, but, but I love USC. Well, he goes to Baylor last weekend and commits on Sunday night to their new staff, new, new head coach Dave Aranda, new offensive coordinator there. So they made a really late surge in his recruitment, uh, as did USC. I mean, USC didn't really start going after him until late December. So both those schools uh, tried late. Baylor comes out ahead, unless anything changes between now and Wednesday. That's tough because USC really wanted a quarterback in this class. They don't need one for this season, obviously. You have Keaton Slovis back. He's getting early Heisman buzz. You have JT Daniels is going to be back from his knee injury. You have Matt Fink around for one more year. But 
when you're talking about overall depth and future and worrying about if a guy transfers out and where your numbers are, they really, really wanted the quarterback this cycle. Obviously, they had five-star stud Bryce Young committed for a long time until he flipped to Alabama in the fall. They never really recovered from that. They they kind of made a late push for for some other guys and just didn't get anywhere. And then they thought they had Chapin uh, in the fold. Uh, so that was a, a disappointment to see him go to Baylor on Sunday for the USC staff. There's really no one else that they've had any buzz or contact with quarterback-wise in this class. So essentially I think what they're going to do is is add one, two, whatever many guys Wednesday and then have some spots left over for grad transfers, which isn't the worst thing. They need help on the offensive line, as we noted. That may be an area where they can go get a grad transfer to plug some of those holes or maybe some of these other positions. You probably would not land a grad transfer quarterback because a grad transfer is going to want to play right away, and there's absolutely no opportunity for that. So I think you're just going to have to hope that you get you get through the year healthy and you have four-star Jake Garcia committed in the 2021 class. They're still recruiting four-star Miller Moss in the 2021 class. I think they're open to bringing in two quarterbacks if they can convince both of them to stay in the fold or come on board. Uh, I just don't think they're going to be able to answer that need in this cycle. And, you know, we don't have to belabor the reality that this is a down recruiting class. USC is going to finish with its lowest recruiting ranking ever. That's... uh, Obviously, partly a function of it being a small class, but more so a function of them just not connecting with the top guys in this class. And, and uh, you know, coming off a 5-7 and seven season in 2018, Clay Helton's continued hot seat status, all that worked against them. The key now is what they do in this 2021 class, and that's why you could already see the focus shifting over this weekend. While other schools are probably still bringing in 2020 visitors this past weekend, USC was turning its attention ahead to 2021 and beyond. And if they can do well in this next cycle, you can overcome this 2020 class. There will be some guys who emerge from this class that will be very helpful, guys that will probably outplay their recruiting rankings. You just you know you don't know who they're going to be. Right now you can't predict that, but – that history shows that there's going to be some three-star guys that really outplay their ranking. And it's it's a small class. It's one year. If they bounce back strong in 21, this will not be a game-changer for the program, this, this quiet 2020 cycle. But that's the big if. They have to bounce back in 2021. As I mentioned in the podcast, you hope that Tyler Orlando can have an impact on the defensive recruiting. You hope that they can build some momentum. And you hope that... They go off to a good start next fall and and try and quell some of these questions and keep some of the top local talent on board. As for Wednesday, National Signing Day, just uh, keep your expectations modest, and we'll see what happens. Uh, As always, thank you for listening to the Trojan Talk podcast. Uh, We will be doing more regular podcasts as we now get through the offseason and and close to spring practice, and we'll have a lot more to talk about. As always, thank you for supporting TrojanSports.com. This podcast, myself, Max Brown, we appreciate it.